Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 27th, 2010. Friday light today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. That being said, Friday Light is uh, is something that we do. We sh- we shoot for it once a week, and we try to have it on Fridays. So there, that's how it works. Sometimes it comes on Tuesday. But you're sitting there, why do you call it Friday Light? Because that's what I want to name it. So there, we live in a postmodern society, and I've decided to semi, kind of, sort of, maybe embrace some irrational ideas. Like the one that um, I'm actually a very tall, short guy. So um, <clears throat> today, <laughs> today we're continuing with our uh, Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous Ideas uh, from Professor Ken Samples and his uh, series that was presented at uh, Christ Reformed Church in Anaheim, California. Today's uh, dangerous idea is not by human works, the gift of salvation. Now, uh, Professor Samples is uh, is a Calvinist, so I think that uh, you know this ought to be a very fine exposition of salvation by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone, the gift of salvation. So without any further ado, let's dive into our lecture today. Uh, Not by human works, the gift of salvation. Here is uh, Professor Ken Samples. We are going through a series entitled Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous Ideas. And of course, a, a dangerous idea is an idea that uh, challenges the paradigm of the day. Uh, It uh, challenges what many people believe to be true and real. And often a a dangerous idea has uh, uh, strong implications for kind of turning the paradigm upside down. Thus far in the series, we have covered four of the seven dangerous ideas. 
I don't know that Christianity has only seven ideas, uh, dangerous ideas, but I believe that these seven are very powerful, and I think it's a it's a, a very thoughtful way of looking at historic Christianity. I guess we could call them the magnificent seven ideas. That would be another way of looking at it. Uh, dangerous doesn't mean that it's harmful. Dangerous means that its implications uh, are capable of changing the way people look at life in a very dramatic way. And of course, uh, I think clearly the most dangerous idea in Christianity is the one we looked at the first week, the resurrection. I mean, you look at the world and uh, the philosophy of naturalism says that everybody's going to die. And it's going to be soon and you're going to die alone and you're going to be dead forever. And not only are you going to die and I'm going to die, but the but humanity will go extinct and even the universe will suffer heat death and be completely cold. Uh, That is, in my opinion, a philosophy of despair. And the resurrection of Christ says that not all dead men stay dead. Uh, And it gives us hope and belief that uh, if Christ is risen, he will also raise our bodies from the grave. We also talked about the incarnation, that God walked the earth. Where is God? Who is God? Well, the incarnation answers those two questions. We also looked at the doctrine of creation, that the cosmos not only has purpose and significance, but that it is the... uh, It is the backdrop by which we live out our temporal destiny, and uh, the universe exhibits fine-tuning, design, it had a beginning, and the uh, creation uh, exhibits uh, God's ultimate purposes. And then last time we also looked at number four, God's existence, how we can reason to God, that unlike the claim made by many people, particularly the new atheists, uh, that belief in God is reasonable. Reason can't cause faith, Augustine said, but reason everywhere supports faith. And so believing in God is reasonable uh, and rational and makes sense of life and the world. Therefore, this leads us to our fifth dangerous idea, And it focuses on the very gospel. But before we do that, I thought I would uh, read this to you. It is uh, an age of the earth joke. Uh, You call it earthy humor, if you will. Uh, Three friends came over to my house for dinner. You can tell it's a joke, right? I I would say a bar, but some of my evangelical friends would, would not take nicely to that. So I have to give a more modest version. Uh, three Christian friends came over to my house for dinner. During our discussion of the age of the earth came up, the first guy identified himself as an old earth creationist. The second guy identified himself as a young earth creationist. And the third guy said that he had just finished reading Tolkien and identified himself as a middle earth creationist. Now, I want you to know that I made that joke up. So uh, it may not be very good, but uh, I tend to be quite original. Uh, And there, of course, is uh, the pale blue dot, which we talked a little bit about when we talked about uh, creation. 
Now let's, let's address this fifth dangerous idea. I think that many, many, many people believe, and some of them are even Christian. Many people in the world believe that God will save people, he'll save you, uh, if you have enough good works in your life. Uh, a lot of people, uh, even people who attend Christian churches, have a belief that at the end of the world, God is going to show a movie of your life, and he is going to then put all of your good works on one side of the scale, like uh, just like we have in our judicial system, the, the scale. He's going to put all your good works on one side of the scale, and he's going to put all your bad works on the other side. And if the preponderance of good deeds outweigh the bad, then you'll get to go to heaven. And if the preponderance of your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, then uh, you're in hot water for a long, long time. A lot of people, uh, maybe they don't say it in so many words, but that they think they can work their self into heaven. They believe that that religion and uh, maybe even Christianity is really all about becoming a moral person. It is uh, all about being a decent person. And therefore, a lot of people think uh, when they think about the judgment of God, when they think about God judging them and bringing them to moral accountability, a lot of people would probably reason the way I would have reasoned when I was a teenager. And that is, if, if you told me that I was a lawbreaker, if you told me that my life had missed the moral mark that God had intended, if you were to propose to me that I would have to face God uh, at the end of my life and, and be accountable to him, I probably would have said to you, well, okay, but uh, I'm a lot better than most people. Uh, I know I'm not perfect, but uh, I, I have a lot of friends who are much worse than me, and so I'm probably going to be okay because uh, I'm not the best person in the world, but I'm not the worst person in the world. I'm a pretty decent chap, if you will. Well, that idea, again, is, uh, I think, prevalent. I think lots of people think this way. Of course, uh, the religion of Islam says that's exactly what Allah is going to do. He's going to, uh, at, at, at the judgment, Allah is going to put all of your good deeds on one side of the scale, your bad deeds on the other, and you'll be, your, the outcome will be determined by the preponderance of your deeds. That is an Islamic belief. But that's not a historic Christian belief. And uh, therefore... This afternoon or this evening, I'd like to talk about a very dangerous idea. And that dangerous idea is the gospel. That dangerous idea is that we are saved not by our good works, but we're saved by grace. And we're saved by grace, and it comes through faith, and that faith is exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. That is a dangerous idea, and, and it's dangerous because a lot of people who are in the Christian church think that that's a very dangerous idea. In fact, uh, 
two of the three branches of Christendom think that that is a totally dangerous idea. The idea that you are saved solely by grace, through faith alone, in the person of Christ alone, they think that that has caused a lot of damage in Christianity. Uh, And so the Protestant idea that you're saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, is perceived by many people as being a very risky idea. Uh, you are, you're throwing the dice and you're teaching people that they don't have to care about uh, moral living. Well, I think that that's, uh, that's a misrepresentation, but we'll come back to that. Before we get into some of the discussion of this dangerous idea and uh, how it has permeated Christian history, uh, this week I saw an interview with uh, Peter Hitchens. Uh, you may not be aware of Peter Hitchens. He is a, a journalist, and uh, his brother is Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist who is also a journalist. Well, um, both of them were raised in Great Britain. Both of them were raised in kind of an Anglican family. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, of course, wrote the very famous book a few years ago, uh, God is Not Great. Of course, he's probably responding both to Islam and all of theism because uh, Muslims uh, are, are known for uh, Allah Akbar, Arabic for God is great. Uh, well, of course, Christians and Jews believe that God is great. And so uh, Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, wrote this book. And the subtitle of the book is How Religion Spoils Everything. It's a very interesting book. And it is a condemnation of religion uh, of, of all kinds and says that belief in God makes no sense at all. And in fact, belief in God does a lot of harm. Uh, I think, by the way, that a good part of the new atheism, kind of a militant atheism, it's it's kind of a strident atheism. It's it's an in-your-face type of atheism. Uh, There have always been many atheists in the world. Many might be the wrong word. Um, Atheism has always been a very small minority group. But at least since the Enlightenment period, atheism, naturalism, materialism, have had a big influence on the intelligentsia of the West. And um, the interesting point of all of this is I think that the strident form of atheism has come to bear because a lot of people, including Christopher Hitchens, think that, you know, it would be okay for you people to believe in God, which is kind of equivalent to believing in the tooth fairy or believing in Santa Claus. And, you know, if you want to believe illusory ideas, if you want to believe things are true that are not, well, you know, more power to you. But then the question is raised, um, we can't do that anymore because now people who believe in God are dangerous. That's a word I like, by the way. Somebody once said that I was dangerous. I, I, I like that. Uh, uh, they, they compared me to Aslan. They said, I'm good, but I'm not safe. I like that. Uh, when I was in high school, I wasn't dangerous. And 
all of the pretty girls, they like the dangerous guys, but I wasn't a dangerous guy. It's hard to be dangerous, I think, when your wife is more mechanically inclined than you are. I, I think that's, I think that hurts my, my reputation as being a dangerous person. Well, uh, a lot of people now think who don't believe in God that you have to snuff out religion and belief in God. Why? Because religious people are dangerous. They'll hijack 747 jumbo jets and they'll crash them into buildings. They'll, uh, they'll, they'll put TNT on their body and they'll blow you up. And so part of that strident atheism, I think, is a reaction to militant Islam. Well, what is intriguing is that uh, Hitchens, of course, says that religion spoils everything and belief in God makes no sense at all. Well, Peter Hitchens, his younger brother, who is just as distinguished a journalist, has converted to Christianity. And one of the interesting things that he says in this interview, and by the way, you can, you can get this interview, you can watch this interview on YouTube. Uh, just type in Peter Hitchens uh, and his book, which is coming out in June of 2010, entitled The Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith. Uh, Peter Hitchens says in this interview that one of the things that brought him to faith was atheism. And he says that atheism is not the end of the line. For him, it was the beginning of the line. He began asking the question, how do I find goodness and justice and beauty and peace in a world without God? And an intriguing thing is there was a painting. I need to go back and review the date of this painting. I, I think it's a medieval painting. But I used to teach a class at Riverside College entitled Art and Ideas. And I would kind of mix Western classical art with philosophical and religious ideas. And uh, it was one of the most enjoyable classes I've ever taught, actually. But there is a painting called The Last Judgment. The Last Judgment. And uh, it has God on his throne, and there's a picture of humanity, and, and God is judging them. Well, Peter Hitchens, the brother of the atheist Christopher Hitchens said that thinking about that painting actually influenced him coming to believe in God because he began to explore this small voice within him that kept telling him that someday he would be judged by God. And uh, he gave heed to that idea and became a Christian, is now part of the, the Anglican community, and has a new book out, The Rage Against God. And he says about his brother, uh, Christopher, that uh, Christopher doesn't know any more. He goes, I know Christopher Hitchens, and Christopher Hitchens doesn't know any more about God than I do. So it'll be an interesting uh, book uh, to read. Well, where I'm going with that is, I think, as I said earlier, that a lot of people think that when they die, at some point, God's going to judge them and he's going to take out his scales and the preponderance of good or bad deeds will determine your destiny. And what God wants is good and decent people and a lot of people therefore think that, you know, they're not the best person in the world, they're not Mother Teresa, but neither are they Adolf Hitler. And so they think that they will be okay. And 
maybe the saddest point of all of this is a lot of these people actually go to Christian churches and they do not hear the gospel. And, of course, the gospel, the good news is that you are saved by good works. But it's not your works. It's the works of Christ. You are saved by the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved by the grace of God, the love of God. God forgives those who call out to him. And uh, what I would like to do with the rest of our time this evening is to touch on this dangerous idea that we are, in fact, saved by grace. Uh, we, are, we are saved by God's unmerited love and favor. And even the faith that we have to believe and to trust in him is also a gift of, of his grace. Well, let's begin this discussion by talking just a moment uh, about the parts of Scripture that speak of this gospel, this gospel of grace. And, of course, the writings of the Apostle Paul uh, are so significant in setting forth the idea that we are saved by grace. Grace alone, not by any works, not by God's grace plus you do your best. When I was growing up, uh, many of us Catholics said, you know, God helps those who help himself. And I'm sure it's in the Bible there somewhere. I just don't know where it's at. No, it would be more true to say that God helps those who cannot at all help themselves. In fact, that's the very definition of grace. And, of course, the two books that speak so eloquently and have through 20 centuries are the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. And uh, the book of Galatians is a very powerful book. Uh, central to the Galatians epistle is Paul's presentation and defense of the doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, in fact, the NIV Study Bible says this about the book of Galatians and the message that is reflected in that book. It says, quote, it was the rediscovery of the basic message of Galatians that brought about the Reformation, that brought about the Reformation. Now, I, I don't in any way want to, to misrepresent the other branches of Christendom. Uh, and there are things about the two other branches of Christendom that I do respect. And uh, there are areas in which I, as a Protestant, could have common ground, in fact, do have common ground with them. Uh, the ecumenical creeds of Christendom are embraced by all conservative branches uh, of Christendom, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, and Protestantism. But yet, this gospel of grace is fragile. Uh, in, in fact, to, to use uh, quite a contrast here, the gospel of grace is the greatest and strongest power in the world but yet in the hands of human beings, it is very, very fragile. And, uh, and because of that, it's dangerous. It's easy to move from the idea that we're saved by grace, God's love in Jesus Christ, merely by trusting in him. It's, it's easy to conclude, as do many Christians, that then God doesn't care how you live. 
that uh, you're saved by grace, through faith, not by works. Therefore, God is not interested in uh, the spirit working within your life, uh, virtue and holiness and gratitude. Uh, Libertinism. And uh, I've met quite a number of Christians who feel that way. Uh, Often they come out of very legalistic backgrounds, and because they have... uh, been weighed down with legalism, they kind of approach Christianity and forget uh, the very words of Luther that faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Uh, Luther liked to say it's pregnant with with works of loving obedience. Well, uh, on the other side, of course, is is legalism. And uh, to give you a definition of that, Uh, It's the idea that uh, I might be saved by grace, but if I live a more holy life uh, and if I don't smoke and, and, and say bad words and don't do certain things that people do in culture, then, then I'll become a more fully accepted Christian. Uh, That's legalism. And notice that, Notice that there's some truth in both of those ideas. There, there is a certain truth in libertinism, but, but it's taken to extreme. There's a certain truth in the legalism side, but it's taken toward an extreme. And so the gospel of grace is a, is a tricky area for people to walk. And Christians often end uh, either in the... Uh, the hole on the side of the road called legalism or on the other side of the road called libertinism. Of course, in the Reformed tradition, uh, we like to talk about guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Uh, I am guilty before God. I have no hope in and of myself. God will judge me, and he will judge me according to his perfect law. The law tells me that I am a sinner, but grace tells me that for some reason of which I cannot comprehend, God nevertheless loves me and has sent his son into the world to save me. And so guilt turns to grace, which then is evidenced in a life of gratitude, living a life that shows our deep gratitude to God for what he has done to us. Well, um, again, in the Roman Catholic system, it would seem that Catholics believe that you are saved by grace. It is, however, through the sacraments of the church, that is the means of grace, come through the sacraments. But justification is completed by works of loving obedience. And I would say that probably something quite similar to that is reflected among the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And so this idea of salvation by grace has to be viewed very carefully. Many people within Christendom are troubled by it. Uh, If you tell people that they're saved by grace, they'll live lives that don't reflect holiness and gratitude. The NIV Study Bible also says this, quote, Galatians is often referred to as Luther's book because Martin Luther relied so strongly on this in his writings and arguments 
against the prevailing theology of his day. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that the gospel, and in particular the idea of salvation by grace, it is indeed a dangerous idea. It will turn your whole world upside down if you understand and embrace and live out the implications of salvation by grace. Uh, here is the, the door at Wittenberg, the Wittenberg Castle Church door, of which uh, October 31st, Luther nailed his 95 theses, which wasn't really an, a revolutionary act. College professors would often uh, place challenges on the door of this university church. But uh, Luther started a reformation, which has not yet ended. And uh, many historians believe is the most influential event in the history of, of Europe. A lot of things have happened in Europe. But the idea here is that uh, Luther started a revolution. Luther was a dangerous man. Uh, perceived as quite a dangerous man by the Catholic Church, perceived as a dangerous man by secularists as well. Uh, I like to note, by the way, that uh, you can tell Luther's influence of all of the people in the world, the most books written about a single individual, you probably won't be surprised by this, that single individual is Jesus Christ. But the second person is Martin Luther because of his dangerous idea. And, and it's not a dangerous idea he said that he invented. It's a dangerous idea that he rediscovered through reading particularly Paul's writings in the book of Galatians and in the book of Romans. Okay, we're going to pause right there. Love the kudos to uh, Luther. <clears throat> uh, do I sound like I'm cheering for my team? Anyway, uh, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. 
well, then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise man plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap.
warning. When you get to heaven and stand before God, he's not going to take your good works and put them on one side of a scale and your bad works on another side of the scale and figure out whether you're in or you're out that way. Nope. Yeah, the reality is is that if you're not perfectly righteous uh, and you want to be judged by the law, well, well, then off to hell with you. That's where you go. You can, by the way, um, be considered perfectly righteous in God's eyes, not by your own righteousness, but by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Tis true, tis true. So, yeah, stand before God with your own works, uh, understanding that uh, 100% on the, uh, on the test is the only thing that will get you in, or confess that you have already failed the test, you are a miserable, rotten sinner, and you need mercy and forgiveness. Not only will you be forgiven, but you will be given Christ's perfect righteousness as a gift. That is great, great stuff. Anyway, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So let's continue with Professor Sample's lecture here on the dangerous idea of salvation as a gift from God and not by human works. So here is a picture of uh, a, a painting, actually, of Martin Luther. His date's 1483 to 1546, the father of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, if you have never read uh, Roland Bayton's book, Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther, then you have probably missed maybe the greatest biography ever written. Uh, that's not only just the best biography of Luther. I think Roland Bayton's book may be the best biography of anybody at any time in history. And uh, we, we have a ladies' book club here at Christ Reformed Church because uh, we believe in stretching our minds. And uh, they, they, have, uh, they have been reading that book along with many others. Roland Bayton's uh, Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther. Well, here is a, a key text, one of the most important texts that comes out of the book of Galatians that was written by Paul and, of course, deeply influenced Luther and those Protestants. It's Galatians 2.16 where Paul writes this, he says, quote, know that a man is not justified by observing the law. He's not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. It's interesting to me that Paul keeps coming back to the word law. He repeats it three different times in this single verse. That we're justified by faith, not by keeping the law. A lot of people, again, 
think that they are going to be justified by keeping the law and they believe that God's going to God's going to judge on a curve. He's not going to demand perfection. He's going to judge on a curve and all of the decent folk will be saved and all of the really bad people will be lost. And not only do a lot of people believe this in the Western world, but a lot of people who are Christians believe this. And unfortunately, a lot of people in Judaism believe this. And most Muslims believe this as well. But Paul says that we're justified not by observing the law, not not by trying to keep the law, but by faith. Three times in the same verse, Paul states that believers are not justified by observing the law. Three times in the same verse, Paul states that justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To, To use the complete formula, it comes by grace, the unmerited favor of God. It comes through faith. And that faith has an object, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by observing the law, but by grace, through faith in Christ. However, Paul makes it quite clear that to embrace salvation by grace through faith does not lead to libertinism, a lack of concern about holy living. Um, Paul never believed that. Luther never believed that. Calvin never believed that. Grace leads a person to faith. And when faith is in full bloom, it leads to a life of of gratitude, not to a life of perfection, not to a, a life that has no evidence of sin, but it is a life that reflects our gratitude to the Almighty. And therefore, grace and godliness are not incompatible with one another. So those who those who crash and burn on the libertine side who say that uh, you can't have grace and godliness, well, they're wrong. Uh, Titus 2, 11 through 14 states it very clearly. Uh, another, uh, another epistle of the Apostle Paul, he says, quote, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it, it being the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's a very critical verse because, again, it's not legalism that teaches us to care about godliness. It's not not legalism that teaches us to care about how our life reflects our love for God. It's grace that teaches us that. So sanctification, this difficult process uh, that is never complete in this life, that involves both God working and we working together, unlike justification, which is purely the act of God. Sanctification 
is, is never perfect in this life. We never attain in this life perfect repentance of our sins. But grace always leads us to recognize our failings. And it convicts us of our sins and reminds us of our great need for God. Grace and godliness are compatible. Appropriate moral conduct in a Christian context flows from sound Christian teaching. Followers of Christ want to do the right thing, but they want to do the right thing for the right reason. Grace motivates the believer to pursue godliness. It's, it's never perfect. It's always inadequate. Our works in this life are never complete, never, never full. But yet grace always calls us to a life of gratitude. I don't know why God loves me. I don't know why he sent his son into the world to die for me when I was in a state of rebellion. But I know that he has because I believe the gospel. And now there is within me this work of grace that tells me that, God, you have loved me. I'm incapable of loving you apart from your love for me, but I still desire to live a life of gratitude in return of your love. One of my favorite theologians is Anthony Hukama, who uh, taught at Calvin Seminary for many years. Uh, I like Hukama not only be- because I enjoy his theological writings, but Anthony Hukama was also a Christian apologist. Uh, like Walter Martin, he wrote in the area of uh, countercults, uh, and I think one of the best books about cultic groups of the 19th and 20th century was written by uh, Professor Hukama. Uh, here is that book, The Four Major Cults. I, I, I always like to remind people that um, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses when they got a hold of Hukuma's book, The Four Major Cults, uh, for Hukuma, that would be Christian Science, uh, the Mormon Church, the Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Seventh-day Adventism. There was quite a clash, by the way, in the late 50s when Walter Martin and Donald Gray Barnhouse came to the theological conclusion that Adventism was not a cultic non-Christian religion, but a heterodox Christian faith. And uh, there were quite a number of people who were troubled by Martin and Barnhouse's uh, uh, analysis of that. Just a few years ago, I went to the 50th anniversary of the uh, Adventist book, Questions on Doctrine, which was the Adventist response to to Martin's uh, analysis. But the point I want to make is not uh, to highlight the differences between Martin and Hukama. But to make this point, Jehovah's Witnesses read Hukuma's book. And uh, at the time, they would teach their people by having them read what Hukuma said Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They felt that he was so accurate in describing their religion. They said, yes, yeah, study that book. Uh, I can tell you as a author in the area of Christian apologetics, I would like to have the reputation that I am very fair and accurate in describing what other people believe. In fact, I call that 
one of the golden rules of apologetics. Treat other people's beliefs the way you want yours treated. Well, Hukuma did that very, very well. The other book is, is a book that's had a big impact on me as well. And it's a book entitled Saved by Grace. Saved by Grace. Um, both of these books are influential, but some of the ideas I'm talking about tonight come out of uh, Professor Hukuma's book. Uh, in fact, he says this. He says, quote, the Christian life is now to be lived, not first of all in obedience to a set of rules, though the rules of God are still important guidelines for Christians, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, again, uh, Hukuma here is kind of critiquing the idea. uh, Sometimes uh, people believe in salvation by grace, but they end up, crashing and burning because they come up with this artificial set of rules. And so salvation by grace is a dangerous idea. And as I mentioned, it's the strongest idea in the world. It's the gospel. But yet it's, it's also an idea that, that religious people, Christian people, sometimes have a hard time uh, holding on to and embracing. Okay, let me see here. I'm going to move ahead in this handout, uh, this this series here. I have all these talks tied together, and I, I don't want to cover some of this material. So I'm getting close here. Aha. One of the critical passages when it comes to this idea of salvation by grace is another epistle of Paul's. It's the book of Ephesians. Uh, we've touched on Galatians. We've touched on Titus. Now we're reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where Paul says this. He says, for it is by grace. It's by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. So that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so eloquently tells us and reminds us that God does want us to live a life of godliness and holiness and to have a life that is reflected by good deeds, but that is, that is the effect of grace in our life. It's the fruit of believing the gospel. It's not what causes our salvation. Good works are the result of trusting the Lord and of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Again, Paul says, for it's by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Again, uh, when it comes to good works, some people think you're saved by good works and they crash and burn. And then other people say God doesn't care at all about good works and they fall into the ditch of libertinism. Scripture gives us the clarity. 
Of course, the, the Greek word grace is charis. We talk about the, the gifts of the charisma, uh, these gifts of grace. Uh, we might say that, that grace can be defined as God's kindness. It's God's unmerited favor. It, it, it's a gift. You, you didn't earn it, but it's given to you. It's, it's a gift. You, you haven't done anything to merit God's loving kindness. We haven't done anything to earn it, to merit it. It's his kindness and his love that he freely gives to us. And of course, faith, the Greek word pistuo, uh, faith, uh, the noun pistus, uh, faith, uh, pistuo would be to believe. Uh, we might define that as confident trust and reliance on Jesus Christ as Savior. So I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by God's loving kindness. I'm forgiven. Uh, it's not something I can earn or merit. It is a free gift of Almighty God. And it comes through faith, confident trust and reliance upon Jesus Christ as the one who saves me, who brings about the forgiveness of my sins. Now, I'd like to... Just explore these verses a little bit here as we talk about this dangerous idea. Because a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of people think that they're going to be judged by God. And if they're a decent person, they'll be okay. But the scriptures tell us something very different. Paul says in verse 8 that by grace you have been saved and that's a very important part of that verse to understand, and a little understanding of the Greek language can be helpful. The Greek verb tense is, is in the perfect, and that suggests completed action with emphasis upon present effect. And thus, what that tells us is that salvation has been accomplished, it's been secured. Uh, by grace you have been saved. Past tense. Not by grace I hope to be saved. Not by grace I am saved, but I may lose it. With all due respect to other Christian traditions who believe that Christians can apostatize and fall away, I just don't think that that is the best understanding of Scripture. Nevertheless, the Greek verb tenses in the perfect, it's completed action with an emphasis upon the present effect. Verse 8, been saved, I have been delivered from God's wrath. I have been delivered from God's just anger at injustice and sinfulness. God's wrath will never rest upon me again. Because Jesus has taken the wrath of God and he has snuffed it out. Uh, this, this idea in theology is called propitiation. And if I could use a metaphor, um, and, and here's my World War II reference, never given a talk in which World War II doesn't somehow show up. Uh, i got to keep that, that streak going. I've been watching a series on HBO called The Pacific. It is... Uh, 
done by Spielberg and Hanks. It is uh, this time rather than the European War known as Band of Brothers, uh, a book that was written by Stephen Ambrose, the World War II historian. This is about the war in the Pacific. And uh, it is about uh, marine divisions that land on the various beaches, um, Peleliu, um, Iwo Jima, um, Okinawa. And what is very common, of course, for these marines is uh, when a hand grenade is thrown in among the squadron of, of marines, uh, inevitably a marine will jump on the hand grenade and take the full force of that hand grenade into his body to keep all of that shrapnel from flying everywhere and killing his his fellow Marines. Well, uh, the metaphor that I use when I talk about this with my son Michael, who is as passionate about military history as I am, I've kind of brainwashed him. He didn't really even have a chance. He doesn't know that, but he was, he was brainwashed. Um, Jesus to use a military metaphor, has taken the wrath of God into himself and has snuffed it out. And therefore, by grace, you and I will never face the wrath of God. It's been satisfied in and through the person of Christ. Of course, Paul says that, that no one can boast. You're saved by grace through faith. No one can boast. No one in light of the gospel, can rightly take credit for their salvation. No one in God's kingdom, in God's eternal kingdom, will be able to say, nor would dare to say, that they have achieved salvation by something that they've done. It's a gift. It's a gift. Uh, that's what grace means, gift. What God has given to us. Now, Paul also says in verse 10 that we're God's workmanship. And that idea implies in the Greek it connotes a work of art. There's another different metaphor of salvation. Our life is a work of art. Uh, our life is a work of grace. Our life is something that God is creating within us, is working through us. And so we're God's workmanship. We are a work of art that God is working in us to change us and transform us. And so we're a work of God's artsmanship, if you will. And it comes through grace. And, of course, Paul says that this work in us, God prepared in advance for us to do, God's sovereign purpose and planning are carried out in our lives. Sometimes the Christian life is tough. Sometimes the Christian life seems like one step forward, two steps back. Sometimes the Christian life is very, very challenging. But the promise of redemption is that, that God has worked in our life through the person of Christ and his purposes and his plans in our life will be carried out. He promises us that. And we are called to, to trust in him, put our confidence in him, 
rely upon him. All of those are the characteristics of that Greek word pistuo, to have confident trust and reliance upon the person of Christ. So what is the place of good works? Good works accompany salvation. Good works are the fruit, but not the root of salvation. Good works are what God intends, but they're, they're the fruit of grace and faith. They're not the root of our salvation. And again, people, people can mishandle this dangerous idea. People can misuse this dangerous idea. And believe me, in the 16th century, Luther was viewed by many people as a very dangerous man. To teach people that they were saved by grace through faith um, and didn't care about good works, well, um, that's not what Luther meant. Certainly not what the Apostle Paul meant. The grace through faith gift, uh, Paul, of course, says that we're saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. Well, what, what, what does that mean? Is, does Paul, is he talking about grace? Is that not of ourselves? Well, that, that seems to make perfect sense. Or is it the faith that's not part of ourselves? Professor Hukama says that in, this in his book, Saved by Grace. He says what Paul then is affirming here can be paraphrased as follows. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And all of this, namely your being saved by grace through faith, is not of your own doing, but is the gift of God. Since faith is included, one could say that this passage teaches indirectly that faith is the gift of God. Of course, there are, there are many people that uh, say, no, faith is mine. I'm the one who chooses to believe in God. Well, I, I certainly believe, and uh, uh, Reformed theology certainly would affirm, that a person exercises their, uh, free, their free agency, their, their human ability to respond by God, but we believe that it's God's grace that enables us to respond to God. God's grace is what enables us uh, to trust in the Lord. And so this whole process, Professor Hukuma says, is what Paul means, that, that none of this is, is really something we achieve. It's all the gift of God. Professor Hukuma also says this on page 131 of his book, Saved by Grace. He says, quote, we're not saved by the perfection of our repentance. I'm so glad that Hukuma said that. Because uh, as, as clear, I think, at times as my understanding of grace is, every once in a while in the Christian life, these doubts arise. And I begin to think that, you know, I'm, I'm not much of a Christian. I, my life really hasn't measured up very well. And there are occasions where sin seems all the more difficult to to resist. And so Professor Hukama says, we're not saved by the perfection of our repentance. We're saved not by our meritorious acts, but only by the merits of Jesus Christ. 
So I, of course, like to shake people up and I tell them, you are saved by good works. And, of course, all the Calvinists begin to, 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 to pick up the stones to, to stone me. Uh, but then I say, it's the good works of Christ. It's his merit. It's, it's his actions. It's his perfect law keeping that is laid to our account. So this amazing statement, this this amazing metaphor that by grace through faith, God the Father looks down at me as if I had never sinned. And not not only just that I had never sinned, but as if I had kept the law of God perfectly because Christ's perfect law keeping has been laid to my account. Now again, sometimes uh, sometimes I have doubts that arise in my mind. Luther used to say that uh, you know birds fly over your head, uh, but don't let them nest in your hair. Doubts fly over your head, but don't let them nest in your your hair. Uh, don't buy into the idea that God's going to put you back on the scales, and it's the preponderance of deeds, and you're not. Measuring up. Uh, That doesn't mean that people don't need to exercise repentance in their life. That doesn't mean that people don't need to resist and exercise their will and, and appeal to the grace of God to resist sin in their life. But it does mean that we're not saved by all of that effort and repentance. It's the meritorious acts, not of you and me, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, Fukuma concludes with this. He says on page 165 of his book, Saved by Grace, quote, one of Paul's strongest emphases is that no one can earn eternal life by his or her good deeds. No one. Not even one. No one can earn eternal life by his or good deeds. It's the good deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Titus 3, 4 through 6. What does this mean? What does it mean that the kindness and love of God our Savior has appeared? That he saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I always like to, to contrast grace and mercy. Uh, I like to think of grace as getting what one doesn't deserve. It's a gift. You don't deserve it. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. Grace is getting what one does not deserve. And mercy is not getting what one does deserve. I want grace. I want mercy. I want God to give me what I don't deserve, and I don't want him to give me what I do deserve. As my mentor, my apologetics teacher, Walter Martin, used to say, when you stand before God, there's one word that will not come out of your mouth. Give me justice. No, Lord, give me grace. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared uh, That's a reference to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The grace of God appeared in the person of Christ when he came into the world. And so the funny thing about these seven dangerous ideas, or call them the magnificent seven if you want, they all build upon each other. It's the incarnation that makes the atonement and salvation by grace possible. So when Paul says in Titus that the grace, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, that Jesus came into the world took a human nature, not because of righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy, verse 5 of Titus, not works done by us, but by Christ's mercy. Again, Professor Hookham helps us here by saying, quote, the idea that one can merit an increase of grace would seem to be a contradiction in terms. For if something is of grace, how can it be merited? And if it is merited, how can it still be grace? Further, the teaching that one can merit everlasting life is clearly contrary to Scripture. I can't merit it. I can't earn it. It's a gift. It's grace. Hookham also says this, quote, All the major elements in the process of salvation are ascribed to the Holy Spirit as their author, regeneration, Or the new birth is said to be the work of the Holy Spirit. I only want to say this. When I was a Roman Catholic, and I wasn't a very good Catholic, and I really didn't understand Catholicism, and my ideas shouldn't be thought to reflect Catholic thinking. But I thought at the time when I was a Catholic boy that the Trinity is a problem. It means three people are mad at me. And then many years later when I began to understand grace, And to learn about the Trinity, it makes me happy to say that I have three advocates, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all working to bring about my salvation. The Father sends the Son into the world. He initiates redemption. Christ dies on a Roman cross to snuff out the Father's wrath. And the Holy Spirit regenerates my soul and makes me able and willing to trust in Christ. Christ and to understand the gospel. Okay, let's see here. I want to move a little bit further ahead. We'll draw to a conclusion here. Salvation comes exclusively by God's grace. It's unmerited favor. Through faith alone, trust and reliance on Christ and not by human works. Good works are important, but they're the fruit and not the root of salvation. That is very different than what a lot of people believe. Dangerous ideas are ideas that often go against your natural impulse. Dangerous ideas are are ideas that you would never think to be true. You know, doesn't it seem kind of reasonable that God would judge and, you know, like a, like a judge in a courtroom, he would put the scale there and all of the Nazis, they'd get judged and decent folk would be found okay. There's a certain kind of reasonableness to that. But the dangerous idea of the gospel is that uh, none, none of us measure up. There are no decent people. Uh, my friend Dennis Prager is is wrong. There's not two types of people, the decent and the indecent. 
I know what he means by that, and I probably would even agree with what he means. But in God's eyes, we're all lawbreakers, and we need his forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, but because of his great love for us, wow, but because of his, and the his is, is God, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. God saved me even when I didn't want to be saved. God God shows his grace and mercy and kindness in offering redemption when I was incapable of doing anything other than rebelling. So it's grace that motivates good living. It's grace that motivates a life of gratitude. It's not legalism or spiritual insecurity that should motivate God's people to seek holiness in their daily lives. Rather, it is God's grace that properly motivates the believer to pursue a life characterized by godliness. Titus 2, 11 through 14, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion, to live self-controlled and upright godly lives in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me conclude here. If I can find the the slide I want. I'm saved by grace. It's a dangerous idea. It's a tricky idea. It's an idea that is easily misunderstood. But I also want to live by grace. And we started by quoting the NIV study Bible. Let me conclude my my talk about the dangerous gospel idea by quoting it again. Quote, Christian character is produced by the Holy Spirit, not by mere moral discipline of trying to live by law. I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ, and I'm kept by grace that comes from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. I recommend to you Professor Hukuma's book, Saved by Grace, and pray for me because I am working on this new book, Historic Christianity, Seven Dangerous Ideas, and I need to make a lot of progress. So if you remember me in your prayers, you'll get an extra gift of grace. No, no, don't. Uh, Ken will benefit from your prayers. How, how about that? Well, let's let me stop there. Uh, and as our Our process dictates uh, you are free to come to the microphone and ask a question or make a comment and have some interaction with me. But we would like you to come to the microphone so that uh, many people get to hear these talks, uh, not by coming to the academy, but by downloading the MP3s. And uh, it is encouraging to me that I get uh, notes from people, sometimes all around the world, and they say that they... They heard uh, some of these talks that we do here at the Academy. So uh, we have somebody at the microphone. Go right ahead. Hi, Ken. I wanted to know if you would comment on the teaching that says a Christian can be in the flesh or in the spirit. Okay. In the flesh. 
and uh, in the Spirit. Well, Paul uses that kind of language uh, in the New Testament, uh, being in the flesh and being in the Spirit. Uh, of course, uh, Paul talks about uh, the things that we must contend with in the world, uh, the world, the flesh, uh, and the devil. And uh, often the term flesh is used, particularly by Paul, as a way of conveying not uh, our, our literal skin of our bodies, but uh, as a reflection of our sin that, that is characterized by our sin nature. And uh, other times, uh, Paul refers to the spirit. And, uh, of course, th- there are times that uh, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the work of the spirit. Uh, I-, I think it would be fair to say something along these lines, that, that the, the, the life of sanctification, the life of gratitude, is to be empowered and to be motivated and to be guided by the Spirit's work in our life rather than rather than to be controlled and influenced and boxed in by our struggle with sin. So I, I think in the best sense of the term, that's how Paul would contrast the, the flesh or the works of the flesh versus the Spirit and the works of the Spirit. In uh, response to what uh, the Bible has to say about grace, uh, do you think that uh, us as Christians, we ought to be uh, the most gracious people on the face of this earth, uh, mm. and especially with respect to like political enemies or people we don't disagree with or we don't agree with politically? Yeah, that's a, that's a really helpful and also challenging comment. Um, you know, there, there is an old expression, but for the grace of God, there go I. And uh, I guess it's I guess it's kind of easy in the Christian life at times to be a bit moralistic and uh, to, to look at other people and and to think that uh, when they've done things that are wrong or that they have deeply used poor judgment or have have been caught up in sin, it, it, it is easy to think that, uh, well, I, I'm kind of a superior Christian person, and I wouldn't do such a thing. Uh, but I think those of us who know the grace of God, those who know God's loving forgiveness, that that grace should should influence the way we interact with other people. And uh, grace, of course, leads to a sense of humility, uh, that, that it's God's love, it's, it's God's providence, it's God that has done all of these things for me. And uh, maybe I can extend to another person a bit of that grace, uh, a, a sense of recognizing that that uh, uh, I, can re- I can treat people with respect even if I don't agree with them. I can, uh, I don't have to, I don't have to, uh, to, to have a, a, a spirit of despising people, even though I have very sharp differences with them. And uh, yes, I think your comment is, is, is a very good one, a very apropos, that those who are the recipients of the grace of God, one might expect that they would learn something about treating others 
uh, with an attitude of grace. I wish I could say that that was more true of me. But uh, the life of sanctification is a, is a long one and a difficult one. Help me to understand better that God's saving grace is not a legal action per se, but it's him. He is the one that literally reaches down and saves me. If you don't understand what I'm saying. It sounds like you want, you're contrasting God well, doing it, but, but not, what do you mean by legal? Well, oh, okay, um, I have in my mind a picture that I used to hear on the radio, a Roman Catholic priest and a quote-unquote evangelical quest, uh, Christian arguing over salvation. I mean, we're talking tonight about salvation by grace yeah. through faith alone. Yeah. Okay, um, in our relationships, marriage, whatever, yeah. there seems to be a legal sort of document associated with the fact that you are. And it's my understanding that you can say that you're, that you're in sin, you know, in a legal sense, that you're, that you're lost, that, you're, that legally, you know, Christ could actually say you're dead and your trespasses and sins. But when you come out of that, when he pulls you out of the muck, out of the mire, that's not a legalistic, it's not as though the judge has, has said you're, you're free. God says you're free. Okay, okay. Let me see what I can, how I can maybe help you with this idea. I, I, I think maybe we ought to think about the, the idea of the legal in two different ways. In one sense, it's not merely a legal transaction. Salvation is is not merely some kind of judicial element, and it's certainly not a legalism. But there are different metaphors used in the Bible. The word metaphor. There are different word pictures. I don't think any description, any single description of God's love and God's salvation completely captures what God has done for us. So what we find in Scripture is that there are all of these different kinds of ways of looking at God's gift of salvation. So we call them different metaphors or different word pictures. Uh, I used a couple of them tonight. Uh, this idea of propitiation, that the wrath of God has to be snuffed out. It has to be satisfied. It, 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 has, to, it has to be eliminated. And so Christ does that on the cross. Uh, other metaphors, um, the, the idea of, uh, of reconciliation. That, that one way of looking at sin is that our sin has separated us from God. Uh, we'll use, a, we'll use a, a marriage metaphor of divorce, of, of separation. And, you know, often the, the, the two who are separated, they, they, can't, they talk past each other. They can't get on the same page. They can't, they can't get back to that place 
a long ago where they loved and cared for each other. Well, we, of course, have been separated in somewhat of a different way. God is perfectly holy and our sin has separated us from him. But Christ, who is both God and man, brings the two together. And there are there are there are many other metaphors. Adoption. That's a that's a legal metaphor. You get adopted through law. You're brought into the family of God. We're orphans. And through Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve this good standing, but we're brought there. Another legal metaphor, of course, is the very judicial metaphor that Luther was so fond of, that Paul uses so effectively in Galatians and Romans, that God has acquitted us of our sins. So there are a dozen, eight, ten different metaphors that the Bible uses in that way. Now, I'm not quite sure I understand what you were kind of focusing on. Um, Yeah. Ken, perhaps you can um, give us a brief explanation between legalism versus being declared righteous or justified you know, because of what Christ has done. Okay, very good. Legal can be a bad word. If legal means that, uh, again, J.I. Packer put it this way, and I, I, I really like this because, I, again, I think it, it's what we see often in the world. Packer said that, that often legalism is, is expressed in very subtle words very subtle ideas that God will love me more if I stop doing certain things. I know, I know he, he kind of loves me, but if I don't smoke cigarettes and I don't do this number of things, I'll become a more fully accepted Christian. And I think a lot of people fall into that category where, where we think that yeah, God loves me, but he'd really, really love me if I'd stop doing these kinds of things. Uh, the answer to that is God can't love you any more than he loves you right now. That doesn't mean that there may not be some needed behavior uh, analysis and uh, careful looking and, and repenting of actions uh, and all of that kind of stuff. But when, when the Apostle Paul uses the metaphors in a legal way, he's using it in a very different way. In the courtroom, one is pronounced, one is declared that you're acquitted. And so the legal metaphor of justification by faith is a very critical metaphor. It appears to be the central metaphor particularly in the book of Galatians and in Romans. And so being in the being in the bondage of God's law can mean that you are judged by God, but there the other legal metaphor is that we have been acquitted by God. So uh the gospel is a dangerous idea. And uh Paul was viewed as a very dangerous man by the Jewish religious community in the first century. He was a sellout. He was a person who had adopted uh, an approach to Judaism that ran against all of the principles 
uh, that he had been taught. And Luther in the 16th century was perceived as a very dangerous man because by teaching salvation by exclusively by grace, only through faith and in Christ was, again, a dangerous idea. And uh, it's also dangerous because even though it's the most powerful force in the world, it's slippery in the minds of people, and often people lose sight of salvation by grace and end up either in legalism or in libertinism, which are perversions of God's grace. All right, there we go. Fantastic series of lectures. Now you're saying, well, there were seven dangerous ideas. Yeah, I know, but uh, ideas six and seven haven't been posted, and so at the moment we are we're going to have to pause in this uh, series and wait for them to uh, post the next in the series. But that's a fantastic lecture on salvation by grace alone through faith alone is a gift, God's saving work. You know, when you realize that it's God who does all the saving, it is his work, his regenerative work, that it's the the whole entire Holy Trinity that is working for your salvation. It, it makes all the difference in the world because then there's assurance because it doesn't depend upon me. It doesn't depend upon you. It doesn't depend upon my decision. It doesn't depend on my effort. It doesn't depend on my sanctification. But it all depends on Christ. Comforting, comforting words and comforting doctrines indeed that are biblically sound. And this is exactly what the scriptures teach. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this radio outreach to you and to the world. Will you partner with us financially? If you haven't done so, you really really should uh, strongly consider doing it to the point of actually taking action and doing so. Uh, You can do that by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see two friendly yellow buttons when you get there. They're right there in the middle of the page. One says donate, the other says join our crew. In fact, they uh, appear multiple times there at our website. Of course, uh, the idea is if you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio as we continue to grow this important radio outreach. And uh, and that six ninety five. dollars the nice thing is, is that you're pooling those uh, resources with a whole bunch of other listeners in an effort to uh, keep our cash flow consistent so that uh, we can continue to operate in the black. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till well, next week. Next next week, yeah, that's right. Until uh, next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. All of them, every one of them. Amen. Amen.